All right, well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it is on page 1277. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, looking at verses 7 through 19 this morning as we continue our sermon series through the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 19. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask now that Holy Spirit, would you please fill us and open our eyes to the truth of the gospel and to the things that we see in this passage. Would you help us to feel our deep need for salvation in Christ and help us to understand where we're at, where are our hearts at when it comes to the receptivity of your truth. And as Mike prayed earlier, would you soften us? And would you use this time to shape us and form us and build us up that you might send us out to continue our mission to make disciples of our neighbors and the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Early in the sort of the formation of the United States of America, when when westward expansion was still taking place, there was a A boxing champion from Ireland, he retired from boxing and moved to uh, America and kind of set up in some sort of Midwest town trying to get his piece of what was happening and as uh, things moved westward. And there was a couple thugs that would come by his business and give him trouble. They'd yell at him, insult him, spit at him. And this retired boxer was a Christian, so he just tried to let it go, just tried to 
be kind to them, even though they were being unkind to him. Well, one day they got up in his face and they were really agitating him. And eventually one of them actually hauled off and punched him in the face. And so he, the boxer's thinking about Jesus's words in Matthew five, you know, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. So after getting hit in the face, he just turns his other cheek towards the thugs. And sure enough, that same thug once again just hauls off and punches him in the face. It was at that point that the boxer backed up a little bit, rolled up his sleeves, and said, the Lord has given no further instructions. And bam, bam. That's a uh, cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. What, you know, you tell like a cautionary tale to someone when you're trying to warn them of something, right? Some sort of story. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But it's a story that you use to, to help caution somebody uh, uh, towards something or against something. Um, in, in that case, obviously, it's a caution to be careful who you mess with. Uh, that might be a retired boxing champion. Um, so as, as we move through the letter to the Hebrews, you know, we're reading this letter that was written to a congregation by the man who was pastoring them. And he has addressed these wonderful and powerful things about who Jesus is, the Son of God. And he has uh, been helping them and therefore us understand the nature of discipleship, particularly in light of certain things having to do with our understanding of suffering or going through difficult situations, trials, tribulations. And we arrive at this point in the book where he is bringing up something from the Old Testament. It's a true story from the Old Testament, but he's bringing it up as a cautionary tale. He's going to quote Psalm 95 and he's going to help those original readers as well as you and I understand something about the nature of real faith, true faith, and, and the nature of trials and tribulations. Just simply that the, these things that we go through, these difficult things that we go through, even as followers of Jesus, one of the purposes that they serve is they actually prove whether or not our faith is real. As we continue to cling to Christ through the difficult things in life, the genuineness of our faith is proven. And um, so as we as we look at this passage this morning, here's here's kind of the key thing that he is this theme he's developing. And it's really not just here. It's really throughout the book. And that is this, that if we have true saving faith. We will continue to trust Christ through hard times and even to the very end of our lives. If we if we really have true saving faith, we will continue to trust Christ through the hard times All the way to the end of our lives. And so we're going to look at this cautionary tale that he brings up. And then also a call to action. Those are the two things we're going to be talking about this morning. This cautionary tale and then a call to action. Keep your Bibles open and available. We're going to kind of walk through a couple different places here. But let's talk about this cautionary tale. Look at verses 7 through 11 and then 16 through 19 as well. He's, He's going to quote Psalm 95 here. And the key thing that he's zeroing in on is is the hard-heartedness and rebelliousness of a certain group of people, this first wilderness generation. What he's getting at is that hard-heartedness and rebelliousness are basically products of unbelief. 
So if somebody is hard-hearted and or rebellious, it is evidence of a lack of real faith. So what is hard-hearted? A person who is hard-hearted towards God is really a person who refuses to really trust him. That's not to say they don't believe in him. But as we'll see in bringing up this wilderness generation that he refers to, they didn't really trust him. That's hard-heartedness when we, when we don't really actually trust God, trust that he's good, trust that he has our good in mind. A hard-hearted person responds to trials and challenges by assuming God has failed them somehow or that he's trying to destroy them through that challenge. Now, because of the lack of trust, those who have a hard heart towards God end up refusing to obey him. That's why hard-heartedness and rebelliousness go hand in hand. If you don't trust him, why would you do what he says? And by corollary, if you really do trust him, then why would you not do what he says? And so the ultimate problem we will see with hard-heartedness, with a hard-hearted person, is that they don't have real trust in God, which means they don't really have saving faith and therefore they won't be saved unless they really, truly put their faith in Christ. And so what he's going to do here is going to quote Psalm 95, and he's really kind of getting us to think about this first wilderness generation. So let's take a look. Again, he's quoting Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was written way after the first wilderness generation existed. But that, too, at that time was meant to be a cautionary tale saying, don't be like that first wilderness generation. Let's talk about it. Look at verse 7. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Okay, we totally got to pause there. Because you, you see the nature of his view of Scripture right there. Okay, He's going to quote Psalm 95. And he prefaces it by saying, as the Holy Spirit says. Okay, So he's just showing there that he believes in the organic inspiration of Scripture. That God is speaking. The Holy Spirit speaks through the Scriptures. And it's present tense, by the way. As the Holy Spirit says. Okay? All right, let's continue. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So once again, what he's talking about here is this first wilderness generation he's talking about the people that moses led out of slavery in egypt he clarifies that down in verse 16 look at 16 for who are those who heard and yet rebelled was it not all those who left egypt led by moses 17 and with whom was he provoked for 40 years was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness right there what he's talking about is these people this wilderness generation this generation of Israelites who were led out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness, who were supposed to go through the wilderness led by Moses and then wind up in the promised land. They never made it to the promised land. They never entered the promised land. They all died in the wilderness except for a few of them. Why? Well, look at 18. And with whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So not only did they never make it into the promised land, but... While they were in the wilderness, they were disobedient. And verse 19 clears a bell. Here's the big issue. 
So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So here's what he's doing. He's talking, he's, he's quoting Psalm 95, and then he's also adding his own thoughts about it. And he's talking about how there was this whole generation of Israelites who experienced this incredible deliverance from slavery in Egypt, went into the wilderness, en route to the promised land, but they never were able to enter the promised land because they were hard-hearted. Because they never really gave their hearts over to the Lord. Let's kind of, let's track with them. Let's look at that story. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 15. I think it's on page 72 if you're using one of our blue Bibles. But I just want you to see what he's talking about. Okay. Exodus 15, page 72 of the Blue Bibles. Let's just kind of track through on this story. So what's interesting about Exodus 15 is what comes before it is Exodus 14. You see how that works? In Exodus 14, if you look above Exodus 14, it probably says something like crossing the Red Sea. So we're talking about God has sent Moses in to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And they end up getting to the point where Pharaoh's army is chasing them and God parts the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. The Israelites do once they're on dry ground on the other side and Pharaoh's men enter in to chase them and track them down. The waters come back and crush them. So the Israelites are safe and they're on the other side of the sea. And that's where Exodus 15 picks up. Exodus 15, if you look at it, kind of looks like a poem. That's because it's a song. It's a song that they were singing. They were praising God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. So they're celebrating. They've had this massive deliverance experience. Now look at 22. 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness. Go down to verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now here it begins, right there. They've just experienced this tremendous deliverance at the hand of God. And they're beginning to grumble. And the word grumble is not ask. They're not just asking, Hey, Moses, we're kind of thirsty, bro. And biologically speaking, we do need water. That's not their approach. They're grumbling. They're angry. And angry at God. It goes on. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16. They're hungry. Look at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See the assumption they're making now. They just won't trust God. And they're actually accusing him of doing wrong to them. It continues. Look at chapter 17. And this is in particular what Psalm 95 is referring to. Chapter 17, verse 2. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And they go on quarreling with him. Moses is told by God to strike a rock and water will come out of the rock. And he provides for them. But then look at verse 7. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah. Now, if you read Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, it actually will say, Do not harden your hearts as at Massa and Meribah. 
And so why does the author of Hebrews say, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing? Well, if you look at the little notes at the bottom of your Bible, you'll see that masa means testing and meribah means quarreling, which is a form of rebellion. So what the author of Hebrews is doing when he quotes Psalm 95 is just filling in the meaning of those words so that we understand. Now look, take a look again. He says, verse 7, and he called the name of that place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's hard-heartedness. Things get bad and you say, is God for me or what? Where is God? What, what, what is he doing? That's a a form of hard-heartedness. And now this is only at the beginning of their time in the wilderness. I want to look at the end, too, because that's also addressed here in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3. So turn to page 154. Let's look at Numbers 14. Numbers 14, which is on page 154 if you're using our blue Bible. So now this is near what should have been the end of their time in the wilderness because they're at the edge of the promised land. They were supposed to go from Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And now they're on the edge of the promised land. And in chapter 13 of Numbers, God had instructed them to send out some spies to check out the land and come back before they go in. The spies come back and all but two of them say that they can't go in. It's, there's, there's big, strong people there. It's an amazing land, but there's big, strong people there that'll kill us. And they, they, they convince the congregation of Israel not to go in. Look at verse 1, 14 verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They just, they just wouldn't trust him. After all these things that he's done, the parting of the Red Sea, providing manna, providing water from the rock, providing all these different things for them, and they just won't truly trust him. And here's what's almost comical. If you keep reading in Numbers 14, what happens is you get to the point where we see what's, what's referred to in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, where God says, okay, I swear that none of this generation except for Caleb and Joshua, will enter the land. All those who have refused to trust me, all those who have despised me, they will not enter the land. So, so basically, God first said, okay, go into the land. And they said, no. And then he said, okay, you're not allowed. You're not going into the land. What do they do? Oh, they go. Uh, look at verse 39. When Moses had told these words to all the people of Israel, they mourned greatly. So when Moses said to them, Hey, now nobody gets to go into the land except for Joshua and Caleb. Here's what happened, verse 40. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are, we will go to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? And he basically says, Do not go in there. It will not go well for you. And if you look at the last verse, 45, They went in there. It did not go well for them. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Horma. So God says, go. And they say, no. And then God says, okay, don't go. We're on it. 
They just would not trust him. They're following Moses. But they're not trusting God. Their hearts are hard. And so in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, God says they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. That hard-heartedness and rebelliousness. They, they don't trust me, and so they're not living the way that I'm calling them to. It's almost like they had a conditioned response to trouble. Every time there was trouble, they automatically just assumed God is bad or God is not helping them. Like they're Pavlov's dog or something. Remember Pavlov, Ivan Pavlov and his dog? He trained a dog to, uh, every t- what he did is he took a dog and every time he fed the dog, he rang a bell. And he'd feed the dog and ring the bell and feed the dog and ring the bell and feed the dog and ring the bell. And pretty soon, without even put the food out there, he could just ring the bell and the dog would start to salivate. Because the dog had a conditioned response. He expected, if he heard that bell, he knew he was going to eat. And it's almost like these hard-hearted Israelites of this first wilderness generation had, had conditioned themselves to automatically assume whenever times are tough, God is not good. That's hard-heartedness. And the reality is, God is telling us in his word that that lack of trust, that refusal to trust, that hard-heartedness and the rebelliousness that flows out of hard-heartedness will actually prevent us from being saved because it's unbelief. And we're saved by grace through faith, through real faith, faith that trusts God, not just believes he exists, but trusts him. Now, granted, from time to time, we all have doubts, right? We can struggle from time to time. But we're talking about patterns here. What you see in this wilderness generation is a pattern of refusal to trust time and time and time again. So I know occasionally we all doubt God here and there. But we're talking about a pattern. What is the pattern of our lives? Is the pattern a pattern of choosing to trust him even in the hard times? Because, you know, what's scary is clearly the... The Bible makes abundantly clear that you can actually sort of think you're following Jesus. But because you're not really trusting God, you don't have saving faith. And there will even be people on Judgment Day who thought they were in good with God. And they'll find out that that's not the case. Think about Matthew 7, 21 through 23. This is Jesus speaking and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, Jesus is not teaching there that we're saved by obeying the law. But it goes right in line with what the author of Hebrews is dealing with here as well. Lawlessness, disobedience, is the fruit of something deeper. It's the fruit of a hard heart that refuses to trust God. It's the fruit of unbelief. See, look at 19. Abundantly, it doesn't get clearer than this. 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so the same thing would be true for those on Judgment Day who never actually trusted God but remained hardened towards Him 
And that manifested itself in a refusal to live according to his ways. The behavior is not the real issue. It's the heart. Don't harden your heart. So we have this cautionary tale. There's this whole generation of Israelites. They, get, they got out of Egypt, but they died in the wilderness. They never made it to the promised land because of unbelief. Cautionary tale. Then he gives a call to action. Let's talk about the call to action. Look at 12 through 15. And really what he's doing is showing that it is just absolutely imperative that we examine our own hearts as well as exhort one another to trust the Lord. We need to examine our own hearts and we also need to exhort one another to trust the Lord and to not harden our hearts. Look at verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Those, uh, it's a Greek word that is also translated as beware elsewhere or watch out. Okay, so he's saying, examine yourself. Think about yourself. You do not want to find out that you actually have an evil, unbelieving heart. It's a, Another way to say this is he's he's basically saying, watch out. Make sure you are really actually converted. Make sure you've actually put your faith in Christ. Which, if you have, then you, you have a softened heart. Uh, Rick Phillips says this, a hardened heart is the opposite of a tender heart. A tender heart is one that is easily penetrated by the word of God, is easily impressed by its teaching, is moved by God's love, and is touched and won over by God's great redemptive works. That's a tender heart. That's a regenerated heart. Okay. And what we would want to do here then is if you don't feel love for God and if you don't want to obey him, yes, we still fail, we still struggle to obey him perfectly, But if our heart is soft, we want to trust him and we want to obey him. And we do try to obey him because we do trust him. But if your heart is hard, this is a call for you to repent. This is a call for you to turn away from hard-heartedness. It's a call to trust in him. Don't harden your heart. So we need to examine ourselves. Is your heart hard or soft? And then we also need to be in the habit of exhorting one another and calling each other to go ahead and trust the Lord. Look at this, verse 13. 13, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, the deceitfulness of sin. We could do a whole sermon series just on that phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. But notice what he's getting at here. He's saying, exhort one another while there's time to do it. Call each other to trust the Lord. Don't be deceived by sin. That's the, it, that's the issue here. Sin deceives us, makes us think that it's going to give us what we want, that it's going to get us where we need to be. But it's all promise and no delivery. And so we need to be exhorting each other, especially in those moments when we're most likely to give ourselves over to sin, and that's when we're going through some sort of trial or temptation it's at that time when we want to exhort one another, do not harden your heart. Trust the Lord through this. You see, we need that. I need to be exhorted and reminded to trust the Lord and not harden my heart. You need that. John Calvin needed that. Here's what he says. He says, as by nature we are prone to fall into evil, we have need of various helps to help us in the fear of God. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. So the author of Hebrews, therefore, wishes them to stimulate 
one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into their hearts and by his falsehoods lead them away from God. Now you might, you might be saying, I thought Calvin was a Calvinist. Or maybe even say, I thought we were reformed. I thought we believed that like, if you believe the gospel, if, you've, if you're saved, you can't not be saved. That you know, Once you believe, you truly are saved. We do believe that. Calvin believed that. But also, what we believe is what the Bible teaches. That the only people who are saved are the ones who truly trust in the Lord. Not just believe that he exists. actually, truly give their hearts over to him, trusting him, which manifests itself in a softness towards his word and a desire to live according to his commands. So no, if you truly believe, you, you will go to heaven. You will be in the new heavens and new earth. The question is, is your faith real? Is it a faith that trusts him? So, Look at 14. I mean, here's, here's the good news. He says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's he getting at here? He's saying we actually have come to share in Christ. We have participated in Christ. We have, we're partners with Christ. Is that another way you can uh, translate that? And it, what it means is that we actually have received the forgiveness of sins. We actually have been declared righteous on account of what he has done for us. We really have the promise and will receive our inheritance of eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. All those things are absolutely true and unchangeable if if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What he's getting at is faith genuinely truly does we are saved through faith i should say we really truly are genuinely saved through faith and genuine faith perseveres genuine faith perseveres fighting against hard-heartedness all the rest of our lives so how do we hold to our original confidence and what is our original confidence see this is what's really powerful He's, he's making it quite simple. Holding to our original confidence is, is the gospel, our confidence that we're not saved by what we do, that we're only saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ, which we receive by grace through faith. Faith. That's our original confidence. And so what he's saying is the very same news through which we became Christians is the very same news through which we remain Christians. We continue to believe the gospel. We continue to cling to the truth of what has been done for us in Christ, which is just a reminder for us to always be thinking about the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, encouraging each other with the gospel, reminding each other of the gospel, talking about the gospel in worship, in life group, in everywhere we are, with our children at the breakfast table, the gospel, just returning to it because that's what keeps our hearts soft. That's what softens our hearts in the first place. and It's what keeps our hearts soft a return to the good news of the gospel, that what Jesus has done on the cross has paid for our sins and we have been declared righteous. And we will enter the true and better promised land, the new heavens and new earth. So this is, for believers, this is a powerful reminder to keep our eyes centered on what we believe, on the gospel. 
There's a town in Mexico called Nacazari de Garcia. It wasn't always called Nacazari de Garcia. It used to be called Nacazari. Now it's called Nacazari de Garcia. And it has a monument to a man named Jesus Garcia in the middle of the town. Big statue. Uh, there's also several streets in this town named after Garcia. Local officials ended up basically naming the soccer stadium Estadio Heroe de Nacazari, which is the stadium of the hero of Nacazari. And in fact, the entire country of Mexico celebrates November 7th as a national holiday, November 7th, Jesus Garcia in the town of Nacazari. Why? Well, because on November 7th, 1907, Jesus Garcia was a railroad engineer and he became aware that this train that was moving through that town of Nakazari, one of the cars had become uncoupled and was sitting basically in the middle of the town. The problem with that train car is it was filled with dynamite. The other problem is it was on fire. And so this is horrible. Thousands of people and a train car filled with dynamite is on fire in the middle of the town. Now, he's this railroad engineer, so what he does is he gets the equipment that he needs to start pushing this train car as far away as he can. And he gets it just far enough so that, boom, when it explodes and people feel the explosion for 10 miles around, it's far enough out of the town and nobody gets hurt. Of course, he dies. He gave his life. Because he knew that blast would kill those people, and so he decided to take that blast himself. And that's why there's a monument, and that's why there's streets named after him, and that's why they named the soccer stadium after him, and that's why they have a national holiday based on him. They do all these things to remember who he was and what he did. And that's how we hold firm to our original confidence. We do anything and everything we can to continually remind ourselves of what Jesus has done, the one who truly took the blast of God's wrath that you and I deserve. But he took it in our place so that we would be unaffected and receive not God's wrath, but God's mercy and his grace. And as we continue to remember the cross, as we continue to look at that, it not only helps firm up our confidence in that it was done for us, but it also reminds us we can trust him. We don't need to be hard-hearted towards God. The cross is the proof that he has our best in mind. All the things he teaches us, all the things that he shows us, all the things that he commands of us is because he is our loving father who's not only provided for our forgiveness and our being declared righteous, but he also knows exactly what we need right now. So we need to have a Pavlovian response in the right direction, right? So instead of every time life gets hard, we say, God's letting me down. We look at the cross instead. And every time life gets hard, we say, I can trust the Lord. I will not harden my heart. I trust the Lord. I trust the Lord. And our soft hearts will lead to obedience and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even though we will fail to live perfectly according to your good ways, Uh, we know that you have given them to us because you do love us. And we know when we look at the cross, we know you love us. We know we can trust you. Would you rid the room of hard-heartedness today? 
If there are any here, Lord, that have never actually transferred their trust to you and are still hard-hearted towards you, would you soften them today through the sweet news of the gospel? And for those of us who do know you, would you help us to be sure that we have shared in Christ? And help us to hold firm our confidence to the end, no matter what comes. Because you are good, and you are worthy. You are our our almighty God. And we thank you and praise you, now and forever, in Jesus' name. Amen.